China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by Tyler Jost, an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Brown University. Today, we'll be discussing his research on how China's bureaucratic structure and politics impacts leader decision-making. Tyler, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great to be here. I wanted to start out by asking if you can tell us a bit about your your background and also interested in how you got on this path to studying bureaucracies and how they affect decision-making and foreign policy behavior of states. Sure. So I entered graduate school very interested in Chinese foreign policy decision-making. I suppose I'd always been interested in the process by which decision makers arrive at the conclusion that international conflict is their best or only option. And one of the things that had always intrigued me about it was the information upon which they made that decision and the fact that it is oftentimes just very flawed. And as I was starting graduate school, I was intrigued by how these processes worked in China. You know, how is it that Chinese decision makers decide to use military force? How do they get information upon which that decision is made? And how good is that information? And when I started to work on my dissertation, it was interesting. I I thought it was going to be a dissertation about what we term like civil military relations, essentially how the Chinese military uh, shapes foreign policy decision making in the country. But as I got into my field work and as I started thinking more about the issue, I began to feel that this was really too narrow. And oftentimes it was actually an unhelpful way to think about foreign policy decision-making in China. And so I shifted to thinking more about this broader relationship between the supreme leader, the topmost political official in China, uh, think Mao or Deng or Xi, and the broader set of national security bureaucracies, um, both civilian and military, that have informed those choices uh, regarding the use of force. We're going to dig into some recent articles you've written, some forthcoming, a forthcoming article and a forthcoming book. Before we do that, I wonder if you can provide us with a overview, a methodological overview of how scholars in this field of bureaucratic politics and bureaucratic politics affect on foreign policy. How does one undertake this sort of work? And as a follow-up, I'm curious if you can highlight the trajectory, origins and trajectory of this field? You know, what are some of the big main arguments or, or paradigms or heuristics that have shaped shaped the work? So in, a, in, a, in an article in the Lit Review section, which authors come up and which main arguments? Sure. It's a great question because bureaucratic politics is, I think, in the broader field of IR within political science, having a bit of a renaissance moment right now. The past decade, a lot of folks have been interested in leaders and a natural question to ask once you've sort of exhausted the topic surrounding leaders as well, who sits around the table with the leader? Where does the leader get their information? But to answer your question regarding the genealogy of thinking about bureaucratic politics, it really goes back to the late 1960s and early 1970s, in which a couple of different authors, Grant Allison, Mac Dessler, uh, Morton Halperin, will began thinking about the state as something other than a unitary actor. A lot of the theories uh, about international relations and foreign policy in the 1950s and 60s 
stipulated that was it was a helpful assumption to make to just sort of think about the state as a single entity. And let's not try to <laughs> open up that black box to think more uh, precisely about who the actors are. And so they made this really big breakthrough in stating that foreign policy is often the outcome of intense pulling and hauling between different leaders and bureaucratic organizations. And the outcome that you get might not be what we would term rational from a unitary actor point of view. Um, the interesting thing is that after the 70s, at least within the academic discipline, the idea about bureaucratic politics and bureaucratic structure sort of fell by the wayside uh, throughout most of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. That's a huge oversimplification, and um, some folks might be grumpy with me. Um, you can show this quantitatively in top IR journals. It just wasn't talked about as much. But then more recently, we've begun to really dive back into things. And I think what, there are two things that make this new wave of scholarship a little bit different. The first is I think the scholars that are looking at this today are much more interested in information as opposed to what we might term like organizational preference or organizational culture. It's not to say that those things aren't important, but we're really laser focused on how bureaucracies provide information up to leaders and the quality of that information. And then the second thing is I think in contrast to what some of the first wave scholarship posited about bureaucracy being kind of doomed to always be inefficient, we're beginning to think about this as a more complex and nuanced uh, equation. And in other words, in some institutional environments, we can get better outcomes than others, which is actually something that is a conclusion that folks studying American politics and comparative politics have, have come to for a long time. We just kind of failed to incorporate it into IR theory. You just had an article in... Uh, foreign affairs in late April, we're recording this in, in early May, that synthesized some of your, your academic work um, and tied it to the recent uh, spy balloon mishap or contretemps here. But you had a sentence which I thought might be worth unpacking because it gets to the heart of a lot of what your current work focuses on, where you write, she which is Xi Jinping, may be a strong man with unchallenged control of the party apparatus, but the decisions he makes in shaping China's foreign policy are only as good as the information he receives from his subordinates. So I wanted to go into sort of several elements of that sentence, which is thinking about the structure of decision-making in Chinese foreign policy, the inputs to it, which are information, data, and how that information is collected, coordinated, collected, and transmitted up to senior leaders to make decisions. So can you first talk about either thinking about Chinese leaders or even just a stylized autocrat? What is the sort of information ecosystem or decision-making e ecosystem that is wrapped, wrapped around them? You know, what is the role of subordinates in collecting and channeling information? And then a little bit later, I want to ask you about some of the incentive structures, but just at a, a sort of highly stylized way. Uh, if we were sitting in Zhongnanhai, you know, what might be the sort of information flows? Yeah, so in this regard, I think Chinese leaders are not that different from a lot of world leaders. So as leaders make choices about whether or not to initiate things like international crises, whether or not to use military force, they need to 
arrive at some judgments regarding a few key things. The first is how strong are they relative to their opponent? And the second is how strongly does the other side value the issue that's at stake? And the third category of information that is pertinent here is sort of, okay, well, what are the strategies that I could use in order to achieve the goals that I have? And it turns out that within China, as is the case in most countries, those pockets of information tend to cluster in key bureaucratic organizations. So information about the balance of power tends to cluster in defense and intelligence organizations. Information about how strongly an adversary values an issue tends to cluster in diplomatic and then sometimes intelligence bureaucracies as well. And then strategies sort of last category, last bucket of information uh, runs throughout different bureaucratic organizations. And so presumably leaders, even though they come to the table with a whole host of assumptions and worldviews about the way that international politics works, as they try to navigate specific problems and decide, do I want to use military force as my solution to a issue that I'm facing today, they tend to need information across those three buckets. And they want some, some folks within the government who collect that type of information to channel it to them, in an ideal world, at least. I mean, circling back to the methodological question earlier, I'm curious, just in terms of functionally how you do this work, as you were just describing that ecosystem, I was thinking, how would we know what information a leader relies on to make judgments in a highly opaque authoritarian system. Let's take the, an issue of sort of lessons learned from the war in Ukraine and what they teach Xi Jinping on, you know, on Taiwan, which is the topic of literally hundreds of thousands of workshops in Washington, right. D.C. right now. Uh, and so we're all kind of trying to we can look at, and Chris Buckley in the New York Times had a really good piece on this recently, where he looked at some of the articles that are being published in PLA or PLA-related or adjacent journals. But how would we know, so we can look at the sort of some amount of information which we see being created by party state military actors. How would we know what information is getting up into Xi Jinping's orbit or, or an autocrat? And how would we know what information they would actually functionally be relying on. Because let's imagine a massive information comes their way. A leader has priors, preferences, biases. And so they might sort of act on a set of information, but disregard all the other information coming up to them. Do you have any methodological sort of shortcuts to help make some of those approximations? Sure. The... There's actually two questions there. The first is about the methodology I use, and the second is the question of like, how would we apply such a method to contemporary questions about Xi's judgments? So the methodology I use is to look historically. My analyses in, in the articles that I've written about, as well as my book, end in 2012. And when one looks in the past, one has a greater sense of either through looking at archival documents or memoirs, a greater sense of what it was that leaders wanted to achieve with a particular uh, crisis and what that judgment that the crisis was the best strategy available to the leader was predicated upon. So looking historically is very helpful in terms of 
figuring out, well, what types of institutions and structures tend to perform best uh, versus worse. The, the second question which you asked about, which is, okay, so how would we do this today? Because there are a number of challenges that we face when we're trying to do this for a contemporary decision maker. The first is that the crisis hasn't happened yet uh, or the crisis that we would want to evaluate hasn't happened yet. So we can't really know if Xi Jinping today is making a choice about whether or not to use military force in the coming years about Taiwan. Since he hasn't made the choice yet, it's difficult to know what exactly is in his informational circle, so to speak. One can look, I think, at information that is publicly available that presumably would be channeling up to leaders inside of Zhonghanhai. But I think we have to be very careful um, and cautious in how much we want to emphasize that information that is publicly available to us. Because like so many other leaders worldwide, Xi Jinping is presumably basing this information not just on things that reporters for the New York Times can access from uh, outside of China, but presumably classified information. It might be the case that these two things overlap quite neatly, but we want to be we want be to be hard to know. Yeah. yeah. Something you and I were talking about before we clicked record is just how in organizational structures, whether those are autocracies, large corporations, think tanks in Washington, D.C., there are incentives operating that shape how sort of subordinate actors in the system communicate information upward. And so oftentimes it might be sort of risk avoidance. You don't want to you don't want to go up and tell the leader that your business unit is underperforming because that's going to lead to budget cuts. That could be you want to hype a threat because you know by threat inflation, you know, uh, budget, you know, is going to flow to you. You might you'd be settling scores. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about in your work, um, looking at sort of subordinate actors and how they communicate information. What have you learned about the sort of operative incentive structures that shape what, what the actual existing flow of information looks like and how subordinates affect that? Yeah. So I think there are obviously many different types of incentives. I think, at least in my work, two categories of incentives stand out as being very important, at least when it comes to national security and foreign policy decision-making. So the first is, what incentives do bureaucrats have to seek out information that's going to support the leader and then deliver it? And we can think about that being curtailed by a number of different factors. So if I design a structure that is highly insular in nature, in other words, the bureaucracy's ability to access the leader is very, very limited. Bureaucrats don't have a lot of motivation to go out and spend a lot of effort looking for good information because they know that the leader doesn't really care. Similarly, if I constantly, if I design a structure that is quite insular in nature, I also send a signal to the bureaucracy that their status within the political system is not as high as it might be. And as a result, if I'm a bureaucrat uh, operating in this kind of insular system, I might be a little bit more reticent, even if I do get the opportunity to send a bit of information to the leader to give an unbiased account of what I actually think. 
And as such, what happens in these types of structures is, one, sometimes information just doesn't get up because the bureaucrats aren't looking for it or they don't have the opportunity to meet face-to-face with the leader. Or what happens when they do get the opportunity, they only transmit or relay information that they think the leader wants to hear. And this creates this kind of intelligence game in which bureaucrats aren't really trying to figure out what is the true state of the world. What they're trying to figure out is, well, what does the boss already think? And then let me cater my understanding of the world and my reporting to that prior prior assessment. So that's one category of incentives. The other category of incentives might be more familiar to folks who have thought about bureaucratic politics, which is essentially, inevitably, any bureaucratic division of labor creates these silos within the system such that you sort of see one particular slice of the pie more than you do other slices of the pie. And that creates some problems, some intentional, some unintentional. The intentional side could be that because I have a particular portion of government responsibility, I might be motivated to arrive at conclusions that help direct resources towards that slice of the pie. But it also can be the case that because I only focus on a particular set of issues, I tend to see the world in a certain type of way. And as such, the question becomes, okay, what incentives are there for bureaucrats to sort of check one another, to compete with one another, such that these organizational biases or these organizational preferences don't create a situation in which one organization is able to send up unchecked information to a leader that might reflect their own best interests, but not the true state of the world. So that's how I think about those two different categories of incentives. How do leaders compensate for this? I would imagine, or we know from memoirs and other sort of statements of unvarnished honesty that leaders, in, in many cases, leaders recognize that they're being fed a load of you know, BS, or at least the information they're getting is affected by the sort of specific interest set of the actor. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here scanning my bookshelf because I'm trying to remember where the quote comes from, but... and. and careful listeners can, of course, send me an angry email when I get this wrong. I remember, and I forget whose book, but there's a quote from Mao where in the early 60s after the Great Leap Forward, something to the effect of, they send me reports giving figures on, you know, on food production and I pretend to believe them. Um, Mm. So sort of in on the game and knowing that basically he had, you know, county level actors who were, you know, so do we have any indication that leaders discount information or, or simply build in sort of skepticism as they look at information flows? Yeah, this is a great question. So first of all, Mao has a couple of very similar quotes about the foreign ministry during the Cultural Revolution in which he states explicitly that he doesn't trust the reporting he gets from his embassies abroad or the foreign ministry at home. That's interesting because I wonder to what extent do sort of leaders discount information, not because it's empirically untrue, but be, because basically it's when he starts hearing stuff he doesn't want to hear, suddenly I don't, mm. I don't trust those sources, so I'm going to write off the MFA, right? So right. it's not necessarily an, an epistemological question about sort of accuracy of information. It's do I value information more that meets my priors? And when I start hearing people basically saying – Hey, you know, 
comrade, you know, the, the Indonesians aren't quite as hot on this tilt to one side as we thought they were. He said, Mao suddenly says, well, what the hell do you guys know? Right. So any leader could, I think, sort of say that information that doesn't accord with her prior beliefs has to be wrong. The interesting thing about those quotes that I mentioned to you is Mao, as he's describing it, seems to be suggesting that it's the credibility of the organization writ large. Other things about what's going on inside of the diplomatic ministry and the Cultural Revolution are leading Mao to believe that it's not a credible source of information, not the fact that the conclusion that they have drawn is uh, in tension with what Mao believed, because at other moments in, in Mao's early years, you do get stuff that's coming up that is in tension with his prior beliefs and does at certain moments in time shape his shape his thinking and um, the choices he makes. So in terms of what a leader can do, any leader has a lie detection mechanism just built into them. And so they might be able to figure out that given bureaucracy is not providing accurate information. The question for those types of situations is, okay, well, what do you do? If, for example, and we'll just use Xi Jinping as, as a placeholder here, if Xi Jinping discounts the accuracy of information that the PLA is providing to him regarding the balance of power across the Taiwan Strait, uh, which would presumably affect the probability of success if the People's Republic decided to use military force to solve the problem. So if he thinks that that information is biased, um, he's sort of left with what he thinks himself. If he can't trust the information he gets from his bureaucrats, he sort of has to do things himself. Now, he could by himself arrive at accurate conclusions about what the future might hold. But that's hard to do. The whole point of a bureaucracy, the reason why bureaucratic structures and bureaucratic organizations exist across so many countries, across so many moments in time, is it's nearly impossible for one individual to collect, process, synthesize, and then form judgments about all the information that is available in the international system. The international system has so much information, it's really difficult for one individual to manage it all. So what I argue is that absent and apart from those individual level lie detection mechanisms, leaders can design institutions that try to alleviate um, both of those problems that I mentioned before. In other, way, in other words, shape those incentives in a way that bureaucrats both feel safe and secure in providing information that is what they truly believe, and then pit bureaucrats against one another in a kind of competitive dialogue such that diplomats argue freely against what the military says and what the, mil and the military does the same thing. Uh, and we can extend out the list of bureaucratic organizations that could be involved in such a dialogue. Um, but the idea is here institutional structures that allow bureaucrats to be in dialogue with one another and know what each other is, is telling the boss tends to produce better information over time. Not in every situation for sure, uh, but over time that tends to produce better information. You've got a paper coming out in International Security this summer entitled The Institutional Origins of Miscalculation in China's International Crises. Scaling this up, from individual actors and incentives, they exist within an institutional setup, which can shape those, those incentives as well. You talk about, I won't call them pathologies, but two features of China's system, which exist in other 
political systems as well, but just in your article focusing on China, which is fragmented institutions and siloed institutions. I wonder if you can talk a bit about how those two features of an institutional setup um, have shaped in the past um, miscalculation in, in Chinese foreign policy. Sure. So those two terms that I use, fragmented institutions and siloed institutions, are really just the nomenclature for that bucket of incentives or those two buckets of incentives that we just talked about. So for fragmented institutions, think about that first bucket of incentives such that bureaucrats either lack the ability to relay information to their superiors or are so afraid of political retribution that they're willing to say whatever they think the boss already thinks. In that siloed category, think that other bucket of that other bucket of incentives. So think about the ability of one in the Chinese system, it's a xitong, but one one branch of the government's ability to transmit information up um, that is unchecked um, by other portions of the government. And as a result, other agents within other bureaucratic organizations might not know that their information is needed. So that that kind of bias towards organizational perspectives, bias towards organizational interests and parochial, parochial interests would be more manifest in that, that siloed uh, system. So I argue that these two things can lead leaders to miscalculate in international crisis in the sense that as leaders are sort of figuring out whether a crisis will help them advance their goals, the information available to them could either be very incomplete or very inaccurate as a result of the institutions that they sit atop of. One other interesting feature of a number of interesting features, I should say, about that that paper is some of the case studies which you go into to explicate some of these features. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about, you focus in depth on the Sino-Soviet split, but looking at the sort of undeclared war between the two in 1969, especially over the shelling of Jumbao Island. Can you walk us through that case study and and what it tells us about some of the information dynamics at work under the Mao administration? Sure. So as as you mentioned, the Jumbao incident, which leads to the Sino-Soviet border conflict of 1969, is one of three cases that I look at in that paper the other two being the 1962 Taiwan Straits crisis and the 2001 EP3 crisis. And what's very unique about the 69 conflict is that Mao's decision to use military force as a mechanism by which he hopes to essentially get the Soviet Union to calm down. There's a series of growing or escalating tensions along the border, which is couched within a broader context of the Sino-Soviet rivalry. Mao thinks that, well, if I attack at this concrete and circumscribed location uh, using military force, the Soviet Union will see this as an effective demonstration of resolve, understand that China is of strong type, and sort of back away. And Mao, Mao gets it totally wrong here. It has the exact opposite effect of what Mao is hoping for. So there's relatively little evidence from the Soviet side that prior to March 1969, Anything regarding military action is imminent, but of course, after the skirmishes begin in March 1969, the conflict escalates over the course of the summer and then into the fall 
such that by the fall, the Soviet Union is sending these indirect messages through Washington that it's contemplating surgical strikes inside of China, which causes Mao to really go into a, a spiral of fear. The way institutions play into this story is, and we have textual evidence now that Mao recognized as he was making his decisions in March of 1969 and February of 1969, that he didn't really call some of the normal bodies that would have allowed bureaucrats, senior individuals within the bureaucracy to channel information to him. He didn't call those bodies to his side to give him the information that he might have needed. And as such, he makes these choices based really solely upon his intuition, his his the worldview, which now had a very distinct worldview and how international politics works. He, I think, naturally drifted towards this idea that if we escalate, it will cause the other side to de-escalate. You can see this in a number of different episodes throughout this history. But what's really unique is in 1969, there are pockets of information throughout the government um, within the diplomatic ministry, for sure, and then possibly within the military as well, that might have pushed back against this as a strategy that will, is going to work this time. Because uh, a lot of things are different about the March 1969 episode, which could have potentially led Mao to believe that the situation is less dire than he concluded, uh, and certainly that this type of action would cause Moscow to de-escalate in the way that Mao hopes. Cognizant of the time, Tyler, and I I've want to make sure I can let you go about, about your day, but I wonder if we could end by just thinking through what some of the underlying research and, and historical case studies might indicate about the, the dynamics shaping decision-making under the current administration. And of course, recognizing that for, for your work, as you mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of the historical work ends in 2012. So the archives aren't open yet on the Xi administration, and he's gonna, he's probably going to lead the country for another 800 years. So it may be a while before that information becomes available. But I guess when you were just talking right now, I was thinking about, you mentioned the word intuition, which I think is interesting because a leader's intuition is, of course, based on uh, past information sort of their own heuristic, you know, case studies rattling around their head. And because a lot of decision-making is not historical, but it's forward-looking, you know, there has to be some, a leader making an anticipation of what your sort of first, second, and third order consequences will be of an action. And so I wonder, I hear in a lot of discussions around DC, the idea that sort of, you know, quote, Xi Jinping just is not getting good information. I bet that's true, right? I bet if we were to look at some of the reports filtering up to Xi Jinping, we might roll our eyes. But where I think it's interesting is thinking about you know two case studies. I realize one of these is not foreign policy, but it's domestic, which is the sudden and to many of us unexpected reversal of the, the COVID zero policies, which led to, we don't have an official number, but a very you know significant death toll and just even for folks who had been studying China's, you know, political system was was a bit of a shock. I wonder what happened in terms of information flows. Of course, Xi Jinping could have very easily, and are, and, and maybe even did, get estimations from various public health authorities on the pathways forward and what the sort of functional effects would be, you know, in terms of public health and 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 death tolls. We don't know, but but was that you know. 
this is more of a rhetorical question. Was the problem there that Xi Jinping wasn't, quote, getting good information? Or was it the case that essentially he was convinced a rip the Band-Aid strategy is going to be the best path forward, right? And, you know, look, uh, the economy is suffering. We can either prolong this or we can essentially take the hit once, screech the car to the right, take the off-ramp. It's going to be messy, but that'll be easier for us to control than a sort of the idea that we can have a, a sort of controlled descent. So I, that's kind of a rhetorical question because a lot of ways I think we're framing this as, well, he needs to get the quote right information or the accurate information. In some cases, I wonder if that's the right question to be asking. He may just be making political judgments where he sees the right information, but when he you know peers into the mists of the future, makes a political judgment in spite of that. Which is a long way of saying, you know, when we think about an issue that's of great importance right now of thinking about Xi's calculation over over Taiwan, put aside whether, you know, just put aside sort of more nuanced readings of his statements and et cetera, et cetera. But if we can just stylize the thinking here, how do you think about this question of judgment and calculation and miscalculation, given your your sort of study on this? I would like to think that Xi Jinping is a purely rational actor, and he looks at what Putin did and thinks, well, that was stupid. But I also recognize we just don't know because it's a it's a very complex mixture of information flows, but also intuition and judgments by Xi Jinping about alternatives if I don't take a, a given choice. And then I just wonder if sometimes like information is really only one small input into the larger matrix of, of decision-making. I mean, that was sort of a rambly sort of question, but I guess it's simply to say, like, you know, we have information, but we have a set of criteria larger than information that a leader may be acting upon. Yeah, so I think it's really helpful in answering this question to think precisely about what we mean by rationality. So the way I tend to think about this is that Chinese leaders, when they're contemplating the use of military force, tend to think about costs and benefits. They presumably have some set of goals that they want to achieve, and they want a sense that there's a pretty high probability that they're going to be, if they use military force, because military force is so costly, they're going to be able to achieve those goals at some cost that they're willing to bear. That's a pretty like standard rational choice framework where it gets complicated in my mind. And what my work is trying to address is that the inputs by which a leader would draw inferences about costs and benefits, about their goals, and about the probability that the use of military force would advance those goals is very, very hard. It's very hard for any leader to estimate those things. It's hard to know what the future will bring. It's hard to, hard to know how the adversary will react. Even something as simple as assessing the balance of power today is a complex assessment process. And so it is possible that leaders like Xi Jinping will arrive at conclusions about the probability of success or the cost that they will bear if they use military force that prove to be quite inaccurate. So to take your example of is Xi Jinping learning from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, perhaps, perhaps not. It's really difficult to know that, I think. 
But we can, I think, based upon history, conclude that it is possible for Chinese leaders to arrive at judgments that would lead them into conflicts or to, to even start a conflict that turns out pretty poorly for them based upon an inaccurate read of things. That's the challenge when we think about, you know, especially Xi Jinping and trying to have a, a framework for his decision making, let's say over the next 10 or 15 years, is there's just a lot of X factors. And, you know, one of the things I've, I've thought about, tell me if this is, this is totally off. I would imagine signs of poor decision making or, or decision making that isn't accurately calibrating costs would probably show up in a number of policy areas, would sort of be fungible across a number of policy areas, not just distinct to one. So it would be unlikely, this is a theory, so you can, but but totally unempirically, you know, backed. So that it would be unlikely that you would see what looks like fairly standard sort of quasi-rational decision-making in economic policy, social governance, but then in sort of, foreign policy just radically off the rails. Maybe you'd have marginal differences between them. And the organizational bureaucratic setups is different for all those areas. So again, you may have a, a different set of institutional dynamics. So I've always thought, I'll start to get really worried on Xi's calculation over Taiwan when I start to see erratic decision-making in other policy areas, because that might show a sort of a qualitative deterioration in Xi Jinping's decision-making. I'm not sure after our discussion today that that's the right framework. Yeah, no, I think it's a really great intuition. Some of my work on the Mao era actually might push back a little bit because national security and foreign policy decision-making tends to be historically somewhat different from other domestic policy issues. So a good example of this, I argue, is that Mao's institutional setup remained reasonably healthy throughout most of the 1950s and even into the early 1960s. I argue that it really wasn't until 1962-63 that things really begin to change, and I try to show that empirically, which is kind of puzzling when one thinks about it at face value because, of course, the Great Leap Forward had massively um, changed the incentives for domestic political actors in focused on economic issues to provide uh, biased information up to the state. So there are differences between these two things, which I think have long been acknowledged. One of the things that I find, you know, or I was finding as I was starting this project was that the folks who had looked at bureaucratic politics in the Chinese context in the 80s and 90s, I'm thinking about like Mike Oxenberg and Beth Lieberthal, had, I think, had the most success in implying theoretical arguments in the context of domestic politics, right? environmental politics, local city politics, so on and so forth. And there was a consistent stream of reticence about whether or not these same models of the way that bureaucracy worked in China applied to foreign policy decision because, because it's so different. And I think, the, from my vantage point, the key difference here is that whereas so much of economic decision-making and domestic decision-making is decentralized almost by definition. And China's not even that unique in this regard. Most countries are this way. But the decision to use military force is so rare and so important that it is, it is, it is 
so carefully guarded yeah. by the senior leader. And so you have to start with the leader and the individuals that surround that leader in order to develop a theoretical framework to understand how it works, which is just so different from the way other things work. No, totally. And, that, and that's where I think after our discussion today, I'm going to no longer offer this brilliant insight uh, that, <laughs> I, that I have previously, because I, I also, you're right, and in, in, in so much of some of these judgments would be so idiosyncratic to the leader. And also there would be varying sort of different interactions. So making a judgment about, let's say, launching some sort of kinetic attack on Taiwan based on an assessment of the balance of power or the assessment of sort of domestic politics in the United States and whether or not the United States is very different, I think, from sort of thinking about what you're going to do in overcapacity in the cement industry. Indeed. You know, and so I think, so anyway, so I, I, this is why it's helpful to actually talk to experts who do empirically grounded work rather than, <laughs> rather than what we do in think tanks, yeah. which is just, you know, make no, stuff no, no. up. But. And if one thinks about going back to those buckets of incentives that we were laying out earlier, one can imagine trying to put a lot more emphasis on fixing or setting the incentives right for foreign and national security policy as opposed to domestic policy, either that because it's so much more important or because the leader values it more or because it's easier to do because the decision-making at the end of the day tends to be so centralized. Yeah. You've given me the greatest gift possible, Tyler, which is my mind has been changed. So again, well, so that's- it's not the, all about prior beliefs then. Um, <laughs> New information well, allows people to update. It, it's, it does, it does, I think, strengthen the incentive to avoid talking with people who know more than you or, or at least appearing <laughs> appearing jointly with them on podcasts because um, uh, uh, then, then my grift is shown to be all the more acute. But I really want to thank you, first of all, just for this topic is- only going to become more salient as we're trying to really grasp to understand decision-making in the Xi administration. And that's why I found this so useful, even if there's still big question marks. And as you say, a lot of your work is historically minded, but nonetheless, looking at those case studies to see how Chinese leaders have drawn on information to make inferences and decisions, I think is the best we can do when trying to um, lay that over the Xi administration or Xi Jinping personally. So uh, this is really important work. I had failed to mention that you have a book coming out called Bureaucracies at War, which looks at a number of case studies as well, looking at the Sino-Vietnamese War in 1979, U.S. escalation in Vietnam in 1965, Sino-Indian War, Sino-Soviet border conflict. So that will be, I think, folks who want to really dive deep should be on the lookout for that. And hopefully it's not one of these books priced at $7,000, but one, one that we mere mortals can afford. And then also folks should be on the lookout for Tyler's article in the summer issue of International Security, which will dig into this in more detail. So Tyler, really want to thank you for your time, your insights, and, and look forward to reading your future work. Thanks so much, Jude. It's really been a pleasure to be here. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 